his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. The consequences of the nation's mental health crisis are plain to see. Without adequate treatment and without places to go, more and more people suffering from mental illness are ending up on the street or in jail. The system is broken, and what's more, it's been broken for so long that it's hard for many of us to imagine that it could be any other way. But despite everything that's going wrong, our guest today says that this is actually a moment for hope. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Benconi. Today on the program, to mark the start of National Suicide Prevention Week, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Thomas Insel, a former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, who later went on to become California's mental health czar under Governor Newsom. So he's seen the inner workings of our healthcare system firsthand. He understands its failings. And yet, he's making the case that we, right now, already have the tools to dramatically improve mental health treatment on a massive scale. What we need, he says, is the will to use those tools. He's written about what that's going to take in a recently released book called Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, and he joins us now to discuss. Dr. Thomas Insel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me here, Keith. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you as well. And I think, you know, things can seem a little bleak on the mental health front. As you recount in your book, suicides and overdose deaths have shot up in recent years. And even now, finding treatment can be exceedingly difficult for many people. Uh, there's just so many intractable problems that never seem to get solved. And, you know, here we are at the start of National Suicide Prevention Week, where we'll be hearing a lot about the need for reform, the need for improvement. But uh, I can imagine for a lot of people who have been watching this all play out for a long time, you know, uh, seeing the crisis in our streets, literally, uh, it can feel like we're sort of just going through the motions at this point. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that you can get us started in this conversation, Dr. Insull, with 
a dose of optimism, perhaps? Um, uh, let's begin here, actually. Why is it that even in the face of all these challenges that are out there, uh, you feel like major change is within reach? Well, part of it is uh, a function of my age. Uh, I'm from another generation, and I started my career uh, in the 70s. It's very hard for people to believe this today, but um, life was better in the 70s for someone with schizophrenia or with a major mental illness. I, now, you know, I wouldn't say that for almost any other major medical problem. Mm. Uh, certainly, you would, you're better off today if you have cancer or heart disease or diabetes than you would have been in 1975. But when I started my career, which was in a community mental health center in Massachusetts in 1975, we gave a sort of comprehensive, continuous, compassionate care that's pretty hard to find today. And we had a national mental health care system called the community mental health care system that it wasn't perfect. And of course, we didn't have the range of medications and bespoke therapies and all the other stuff that we talk about in the 2022 era, but I think the experience that somebody would have was actually a little bit better than they at least had a sense that there was a system of available to them and there were people accountable for making sure that they recovered. Uh, today, we have a system that's very fragmented and um, I think there's no arguing that there's, there's a greater likelihood of incarceration and homelessness and even unemployment um, if you're a person with schizophrenia or severe bipolar illness, then would have been true 40 or 50 years ago. So part of why I'm so hopeful is because we knew how to do it then and we did it. Um, so it's not that we have to kind of come up with some magical new treatment or some incredible discovery. We simply have to get our, find our way back to being a society that cared and creating the set of services um, that we used to not only pay for, but provide. Uh, so I don't think that's, I don't think that's such a hard problem to solve. Right. And that's uh, certainly a theme in your book, laying out the many tools that we do have right now that could be deployed at much greater scale and to much greater efficacy. But let's actually start at the beginning and work our way there. You mentioned how different things were going back just 50 years to the 1970s. And laying out that history is a, a major part of your book. So let's actually start with that history. Tell us a little bit about where it all went so wrong. Yeah, so it, it so where we start is really in the mid-19th century. The 1850s to 1960 era was the era of state mental health asylums. So people with a serious mental illness would be shipped off to a state institution. They were often massive. <clears throat> I worked in the Napa State Hospital in the 70s. I think we had 3,000 people hospitalized at that point in a beautiful setting away from any city. Um, and and um, often people would stay there for years with kind of, they were essentially warehoused. That changed in 1963 when President Kennedy, uh, who had a family member who had been through this, so he was sensitized, made a real commitment. <clears throat> it wasn't really so much his ideas, one of his sisters who really pushed him into this. And he created the Community Mental Health Act when he signed that in October 31st, 1963. One of the last things he did before he was assassinated, he said that um, people with serious mental illness will no longer be alien to our affections 
are separate from our communities. Mm. The idea being we're going to get rid of the state hospitals. We'll create a federal system that will allow people being on medication now to have a life in the community. And for about 10, 15 years, when I got into the field uh, in the 70s, that seemed to be working pretty well. It wasn't perfect, but it certainly was a sign of progress. Many of the state hospitals closed. People did, in fact, end up in community mental health centers. There were a lot of uh, resources like uh, SSI and SSDI and a bunch of other things, like Medicaid, that were created during that era as a sort of social safety net. That all ended in 1980 when Reagan said, wait a minute, this is not the federal government's job. Federal government isn't into healthcare. We don't provide for education, healthcare, all that stuff. That's up to the states and up to local communities. We're out of that game. So he basically, like a hot potato, passed it back to the states. The problem with that was the states had just de-invested. They just closed all their hospitals and they had moved their money into building prisons and jails and other stuff. So there was no real financial ability to respond through the 80s and 90s, which led to the, that was really the beginning of the crisis we're in now, is that people no longer had the state hospitals, they no longer had community mental health centers, which had been defunded. So there really was no capacity to help people in the community. Uh, and that's been sort of three or four decades in the making. The result is that people are more likely to be incarcerated, they're more likely to become homeless. They're much less likely to get the kinds of recovery services like job training and housing support that they need to actually thrive. They will get some treatment, but it's in the form of what I call sick care, not health care. They get medication, they get acute crisis response, sometimes not great, um, but they're getting treated at a time when they're kind of least likely to be able to reap the benefits for long-term. So it's really, it is crisis sick care, not recovery oriented healthcare. That's what we've lost and that's what we need to regain. All right, a lot more to unpack there and we will in just a second, but real quick for anyone just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, as we kick off National Suicide Prevention Week, we're discussing what it's going to take to fix our broken mental health care system, or perhaps mental sick care system, as we just heard a second ago. Getting the view from Dr. Thomas Insull, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, who has also served as an advisor to Governor Newsom on mental health policy. His new book is Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And a very quick reminder that if you or someone you know is experiencing mental distress, free and confidential assistance can be reached at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Just dial 988. Again, the number to call is 988. So, uh, Dr. Insull, I want to pick up on a phrase that you dropped in a little bit earlier in the conversation, uh, this notion that we should no longer leave those with mental illness alien to our affections. Um, such a such a powerful phrase, and I think a good guiding light for this conversation. Uh, but I can also imagine a lot of our listeners out there um, thinking to themselves that, you know, they, they are on board with the project of... Uh, giving as much love and support to those with mental illness as we possibly can. But, you know, the question remains, 
what is to be done, what actually works. And there is this sense of uh, futility at this point. You know, maybe maybe nothing works. Maybe there isn't anything that uh, can be done. Uh, you, you, building on this point that you've been making, that you know there are treatments out there that works, there are interventions that work. Uh, one of the big problems that you point out is that those treatments, those interventions, simply aren't making it to the vast majority of people uh, who need them, and and that alone is a major problem. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's if I told you the same story for cancer or heart disease, you'd say, "No way, that can't be true." But if you look at the the services that look like they're the most effective for people recovering, supportive housing, supported employment, what we call ACT teams, assertive community teams and help with engagement, meet people where they are, um, providing the kind of enhanced care management that makes sure that people get continuous support. And it's not just for medication, but it's for uh, psychotherapy and social support they need. You know, there are four or five things like that. Engaging families is probably the fifth that's really huge. These are not that complicated. They're not high tech. They're not expensive. And yet less than 5% of people with serious mental illness get any of those things. That's just crazy, right? I mean, it's like telling you that somebody who had a form of cancer that was treatable, that the treatments are out there and yet fewer than 5% of people get access or end up engaging in those in those treatments. And you'd have to ask, why not? What's the mistake here? What's the problem? In this case, a lot of it comes down to what do we pay for? Mm-hmm. We do pay for emergency room care, inpatient care, medication management. For the most part, we do not pay for those ACT teams. We don't pay for clubhouses, which are really important for social support and for job training and all of those kinds of things. So we have a whole range of these community services that we know are really effective for this population. And it's the weird thing to me. And this is what I still can't understand. I tried to figure it out when writing the book and I still don't really get it. But how it is that in a nation that's spending almost $4 trillion for what they call healthcare, this set of services like clubhouses and act teams, when they do exist, are paid for by nonprofits who are basically supported on philanthropy and bake sales. That none of that $4 trillion for healthcare actually is used for the things that are effective and actually would save a tremendous amount of money because they would engage people in care before there's a crisis. They would really help people to thrive and to be able to ultimately support themselves. It's an astonishing mistake. So, so that money is that money is going to pharmaceuticals and psychotherapy instead. It's it's going to what we call the healthcare system. And mm. what I try to do in the book is to say that's actually the sick care system. Let's rethink this. Let's mm. actually redefine what we mean by care and figure out how to use that some of that money to actually pay for things that help people to thrive, not yeah. just the things that are required when they're in the emergency room. Mm. And uh, circling back uh, real quick, you used the term uh, clubhouse. Uh, briefly, could you define that for us? Yeah, a clubhouse is a, uh, a place where people come uh, during the day um, and they get social connection, support from others that are struggling with the same issues. Uh, they'll get a decent meal. They may get job training, computer support, a bunch of other things that they need 
just to help get their back on their feet. Hmm. All right, that's helpful. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about these treatments because I think it actually may come as news to some of our listeners that uh, medications and therapy really can make a difference. Uh, I, I think probably in a lot of our minds, we still think of us as being in you know the dark ages of mental health treatment. Uh, but your book suggests that in many cases, the treatments that we have right now are as effective as many common medical interventions. So uh, talk about that if you could. There's always room for improvement. There's no question, and especially around getting more precise and knowing which treatment for which person. There's too much kind of trial and error today. But it would be a mistake to think that we don't have anything to offer or that people who develop a mental illness are going to be disabled. That's the piece that I think um, people need to understand. These are entirely treatable illnesses. And they're treatable not just with medication, but medication plus therapy, plus social support. I talk a lot in the book about the importance of providing the three Ps for people to recover, people, place, and purpose. So medication, that's in there acutely. And sometimes that requires hospitalization. Sometimes it requires intensive care. But in the long run, what matters is people, place, and purpose, giving people social support, having someone who has their back, who they trust, who can help them through what is really an enormous psychological storm. Having the safe environment, it's really hard to recover when you're homeless and you don't have a place to sleep. Having an environment that's really a sanctuary that's safe and is nurturing. And then most of all, giving people a purpose, having a mission, having something driving you. So it's a reason to recover and a reason to get up every morning. Um, Sometimes that can be just helping other people in the same situation, serving as a peer. Sometimes it means trained to do a job. Sometimes it, you know, it means finding your own way, but those three P's, again, they're not actually part of healthcare today, but they need to be because that is what makes the difference between someone recovering and getting on with their life in a way that lets them thrive in spite of having a history of an illness and somebody who ultimately is just defined by their illness and becomes disabled and isn't really able uh, to manage except within the sick care system. Uh, real quick, just going to reintroduce you one last time. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Mancone. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Thomas Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, talking about his new book, Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Uh, also, a quick programming note, uh, as we mentioned, we are coming up on National Suicide Prevention Week. And later on this week, we will be presenting more special coverage on the nation's mental health crisis. That's going to be led by KCBS contributor Jeff Bell. So keep it tuned for that just a little bit later on. But, well, we promised uh, some optimism at the beginning of this conversation, and I think that we have found our way to that optimism, the many options that are out there, the promising treatments that are out there, the massive experience that we have uh, with providing this care at this point. But... Uh, obviously, I, there's still a lot of frustration. I can hear the frustration in your voice for the many roadblocks that we're facing to deploy this all at scale. What, in your view, is between us and that more optimistic future? What does it take to get there? Well, if we'd been having this conversation a couple of years ago, I would have been saying, uh, we're, we're going to need a revolution. We're going to need a whole social movement. And, and maybe we do still. 
But you and I are having this conversation in California, mm. and California is leading, utterly leading the nation with the most progressive commitment to people with mental illness that we've seen in decades. Um, it's and actually, to be honest, we've probably never seen anything quite like this. So most people with serious mental illness, the, the largest payer for them is is Medicaid, and they are um, they are supported by federal funds, all of their health care. And as I've been saying, the problem in America is that healthcare doesn't recognize these three P's, people, place, and purpose. Um, that's all changing this year. And it's changing because of something called CalAIM, which is California advancing and innovating Medicaid. And what CalAIM does um, is it allows the state of California to start using Medicaid funding for people, place, and purpose. It allows um, a provider to write a prescription for food or a prescription for housing or a prescription for uh, going to a clubhouse. It's kind of extraordinary. Um, the Now the flexibility that exists within California to begin to really de redefine what we mean by care. It's stunning. And it's um, there's no other state in the nation that's gone as far. New York is now copying us. and. Then, and hopes to have their um, Medicaid changed accordingly. North Carolina has already done a little bit of this, but we've gone the furthest. And I think um, it'll be really exciting to see this all roll out. This is the transformational moment. There's also a real interest in California in moving upstream, doing more to make sure we're not in this pickle for people with chronic mental illness. So capturing the problem much earlier, and that's being done through something called the the California Children's and Youth uh, Behavioral Health Initiative, a $4.4 billion commitment by the state to actually completely redesign and uh, rethink um, how we provide mental health care, what we even consider mental health care for young people. And young here means uh, zero to 26. At zero, it means something called dyadic care, where families will get uh, mental health support when they come for well baby visits. Like what a brilliant idea that is that hasn't been done before. And, and later on, it means in schools having a, an entirely new workforce to, um, to help schools and school-aged children uh, manage uh, a whole range of mental health issues, everything from sort of mental health awareness to actual mental health care. We're doing something pretty extraordinary in this state. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Um, and to be fair, it's, you know, there's still a lot to be done. Um, the money's there, the programs are now announced, but the actual deployment, execution, delivery, I mean, that is still to come. And I think all of us um, need to sort of wait and see how that's gonna work out. But I am incredibly hopeful um, that this state is doing more than probably any other state we're certainly spending more than any other state. And I think we'll soon be actually delivering more than any other state for those with uh, mental health challenges. Yeah, just to re-emphasize uh, for anybody who may have missed it earlier on in the program, uh, Dr. Thomas Insull has served as an advisor to Governor Newsom on mental health policy. He toured the state uh, trying to get to the bottom of all the various challenges that are out there. And he currently uh, serves 
uh, in a uh, on the, on the board of a major mental health nonprofit in the state. So he has been keeping his finger on the pulse of uh, these topics. He knows of which he speaks. Uh, but again, I suppose I'm just trying to channel our listeners throughout this conversation. We are, as Californians, quite used to hearing about new programs and initiatives. Yeah. Whether we're talking about the local level, the county level, the state level, there's there's a new press con- I've been to a dozen of these press conferences where we've been told about all the ways that things are about to magically change. And so... Uh, speak speak to those listeners who maybe feel a little bit like Charlie Brown with the football at this point and uh, feel like they've heard this story before. What is so different about what you're talking about right now? How is it going to look different in people's day-to-day lives? Well, it, it is different. I, I should say at the outset, I get it. And, you know, I've had some of the same concerns Um what I think has changed most of all is not the money. It's not even the programs. It, to me, it boils down to one word, which has been missing all the way through. And that's the word accountability. There's been no one accountable uh, for reducing suicide, improving school mental health, to ensure that everybody graduates uh, from high school. Um, you know, looking at the needs of kids coming out of the foster care system. These are like super big issues. These are crisis level issues. And there's really been no one accountable. Um, The way I read Cal AIM, what makes me so hopeful is that it has built in accountability. It says, look, yeah, the money's gonna be there, but it's up to a set of managed care organizations throughout the state, not the counties in this case, but these managed care organizations that have been engaged in working with the counties, it's up to them to hold everyone's feet to the fire to make sure that in fact, we have some objectives out there that we meet and that um, within five years, um, the state looks different. Now, I get it that we've had this conversation about homelessness and about crowding of prisons and all of that for a while. Um, I, I actually think that um, this time is different. I, and it's not so much around housing and homelessness, which is in some ways a more intractable problem, but it is about ensuring that people who have a psychotic illness aren't incarcerated, um, that we do a better job with crisis services so that um, young kids of color who have psychosis aren't gunned down by police because of just confusion about what's going on. So there's a, there's a lot going on that um, when I, you know, I came to the state in 2015, none of this was in anybody's sights at that point, seven years ago. And I must say, even at the beginning of the Newsom administration, when I was involved and I was involved for a very brief time, um, we weren't talking about any of this. It was really, you know, it was a sense. I mean, I remember meeting with the governor um, even before he took office. I met the first time I met with him. He started the conversation by saying, you know, I used to be a mayor. And when I was a mayor, um, I looked at the big problems being homelessness, crowding in the jails and, uh, and poverty. He said, I never realized that all three of them um, had a root cause in serious mental illness that was untreated. He said, I don't want to make that mistake again. 
I want to make sure we go after that root cause. And he was very clear, it's not all that, but that's a big factor uh, in homelessness and incarceration that um, we can avert, we can fix. And, and that's the commitment he's made. So uh, this state is in a completely different place than it was five years ago. And I must say, a different place than any other state in the union. It looks a little bit more like um, Scandinavia, where a lot of this has already been put in place. Yeah. Well, as you say, a lot happening all at once, a lot to keep track of, but also a lot to be hopeful about as we kick off this National Suicide Prevention Week. We have been speaking today to Dr. Thomas Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, as we've been saying, also served as an advisor to Governor Newsom on mental health policy. His new book is Healing our path from mental illness to mental health. Dr. Thomas Insel, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And once again, the number to call for free and confidential assistance with a mental health crisis is 988. That's going to be the end of our program for KCBS and In Depth. I'm Keith Benconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk with you again next week. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this... Why? A lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them, with more coming in. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future. In vehicles and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified, diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you, a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Toyota, let's go places.